continue with a little more on ignorance and um, <laughs> then we'll move into the... We're only at the second or third paragraph of the sutta, so we've got to speed up here. <laughs> so just to say a couple of things about ignorance, this um, quality of restlessness in the mind, one of the things I want to suggest is it's not a random or superficial thing. This is a very deep-rooted tendency that um, is the manifestation of ignorance and also of suffering. It's the manifestation of, of suffering. The Buddha said something very interesting. He says that when, we, when one suffers, it results in either bewilderment or search. I love that. <laughs> suffering results in either bewilderment or search. So most of the world is doing both. Most of the world is bewildered and searching, but normally searching through sense pleasure. Most of the world is searching through sense pleasures to an end to unhappiness. But as we get a little smarter, we start to search through spiritual paths. Or, or there's an intermediate stage, which is searching through philosophical views, which doesn't work. A lot of people search through, through the intellect to come up with a philosophical view, and that doesn't resolve the problem, so they keep searching and arguing. But once we learn how to search through meditation and finding inner peace, that route has an outcome. That has a resolution. So this bewilderment is part of the confusion of, of ignorance that um, has, lain, has lain dormant. The other thing to say about ignorance is that uh, it is the, the most fundamental of the three asavas. You know, its point at the beginning of dependent origination suggests that. It's kind of the start of the wheel. And also, this is a, a nice quote from Majima uh, Sutta number nine. With the arising of ignorance, there is the arising of the taints. It puts it in a more fundamental position than either sense pleasure or becoming. But also in that paragraph, I mean, also in that sutta, earlier paragraph, it says, with the arising of the taints, there is the arising of ignorance. <laughs> so the taints and the ignorance influence each other. But still, ignorance is more fundamental than either the sense pleasures or becoming by this statement of the Buddhas. Okay, so now we're ready to move into paragraph three. And um, we had the reading of it on the destruction of the taints, which we acknowledged a little while ago. And now we'll come back to that sentence that say, the destruction of the taints is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and see. Who knows and sees what? Wise attention and unwise attention. These are two of the very key concepts, not only in this sutta, but I would say in the Buddha's whole teaching, that as Western teachers, we have not put enough emphasis on. Mary Ann is nodding her head vigorously. She and I, she and I just finished a retreat with Ajahn Suchito this past week. Anybody else there on that retreat? Uh, yes, I remember. Yeah, Flavia, of course. Yes, hi. And uh, he talked quite a bit about wise attention and unwise attention, uh, and he really drew out how central it is. It is the heart of the path, you might say. It's the counterpoint to ignorance. Even before mindfulness, or right with mindfulness, it starts the whole thing rolling in a wholesome direction. 
So let's take a look at these two words, wise attention and unwise attention. The word that's, uh, the phrase that's being translated is yoniso, that's Y-O-N-I-S-O. It's the first word. And the second word is manasikara, which is M-A-N-A-S-I-K-long-A-R-A. Manasikara means attention. And the way it's used in the Pali texts, I think it has kind of both flavors of the meaning that it has in English, which is, first of all, as a focus of our consciousness. You know how when you sit back and you kind of look around the room, first you'll pay attention to one thing and then you'll pay attention to something else and then to something else? So Manasikara also has that meaning of where our focus lands momentarily. And it, it's always changing. Could be as you watch your experience in a meditation session. Could be on an in-breath for a moment. It could be on a mental state for the next moment. It could be on a sound. It could be on a, a thought uh, that goes through. Could be on another body sensation. The attention is kind of always moving and highlighting different aspects of experience. That's one meaning of Manasikara in Pali. The other meaning is more like um, what are we interested in? What do, what do we give attention to in a, in a broader kind of way um, in our life? Like a small child comes up who has a, a cut on their thumb, you want to give attention to that to take care of the child's wound. That's just a natural thing to do. So we could call that giving attention over a sustained period of time. Even though if we look closely, our actual momentary focus will shift from the sight of the child to what we're going to say, to thinking about where the band-aids are, to coming back, to touch on the finger and so forth. So it has both this narrow meaning, momentary focus, and the broader meaning of what do we care about and give our energy to. Now this word yoniso, is interesting. It's being translated here as wise, but the original meaning, as I understand it, is like a yoni. And in in Indian language, I think both Pali and Sanskrit, yoni is the female organ, and it could be translated as womb. Um, And so I've heard this explained two different ways. One is that this reference to the womb means uh, caring, Uh, a a kind of attention that embraces, holds, nourishes, nurtures, cares for. That's one meaning that I've heard explained of Yoniso by a Pali scholar. The other meaning that I've heard explained, and this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's interpretation, is it means uh, source, like the womb is a source, but it's source as in uh, where does everything come from or let's get to the point. This is the way Ajahn Suchito explained it. Let's get to the point with this. So an investigation or a kind of attention that gets to the point about something and the way that Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it is uh, careful, thorough. Um, what would you use for something that really takes its time 
and goes uh, deep, goes deeply into the question that it's landed on. Articulous? Articulate? Deliberate. Deliberate, yes. That kind of meaning. And then attention doesn't just mean, like in the narrow sense, it just means noticing what's there. But in the sense of yoniso, it means um, more like examination, reflection, consideration, deliberation. So, in the sense, the way that Bhikkhu Bodhi explains it, and this seems to fit well, it really means letting our interest and attention settle and come to understand what's going on. Get to the point of it all. So I'm going to explain it from that, uh, that kind of view. That's the way Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it. As it says in paragraph 3, when one attends unwisely, it says without a lot of consideration, without being careful in one's looking, unarisen taints arise and arisen taints increase. Okay, so let me give you an example of this unwise attention. I was at the gym a couple of days ago, and they have a lot of magazines on the folder, so you can pick them up and read them while you're on an exercise machine. So there was this one magazine, I don't know if it was People or Us, but it was kind of in that, that range. And the headline was, Kate and Kim do same day, with an exclamation point. So at first I had, I, who are you talking about? But then I realized, because I read enough headlines, it's Kate Middleton and Kim Kardashian. And they're both pregnant. And they're pointing to the fact their babies are due on the same day, and that's a big deal. I thought, this is really unwise attention. Whatever journalist spent enough time on that to figure that out, make a headline on it, and put it on the cover of a national magazine, that is unwise attention. The unarisen taints arise, and the arisen taints increase. So think about how much time we spend on things that aren't of any spiritual import. That means that for our development, that don't actually benefit our mind. All the gossip that's on the web, on televisions, um, all the gossip about our friends and our neighbors, the curiosity we have about other people's lives. And then think about even the things that are important in you know our own lives. Let's take things like our children, or our partners, or our parents, or our jobs, or our bank accounts. These are important things, but how much of the time do we dwell on them in ways that make the taints increase? With worry, with anxiety, with regret, with longing, with desire, with frustration, with irritation. So this sutta is calling on us to look where we put our mental energy and how we're relating to the things we relate with. So wise attention is not just about what's a useful thing to connect with in our life. It's really about how are we connecting with it? How am I relating? 
And we want to relate in ways that will help develop our minds, our minds and hearts, and not in ways that will erode our minds and hearts. The taints erode our hearts. And developing wholesome qualities feeds, nourishes, strengthens, grows our minds and hearts. And so the Buddha says, when one attends wisely, unarisen taints do not arise and arisen taints are abandoned. That means the mind comes into a wholesome place. So one of the reflections for a meditator is, where am I putting my attention? This is not just on the cushion, which is important, but also in our daily life. Where am I putting my attention? And am I doing it in a wise or unwise way? We want to put our attention on things like our children and parents and partners and family members and our bank accounts and our jobs and so on. Those are important parts of life. But we don't want to do it in a way that we're stoking our anxieties, fears, regrets, self-recrimination, blame, guilt, hostility, and so on. So this is, a, this is a strong calling, something that we can take as a, a daily life practice for a very long time. Where am I placing my attention and how am I using my attention? Because where we put our attention, we energize that part. That part of our life gets more cared for. It, it can either entangle us or it can open us to wisdom. So how are we relating to those important parts of life that have captured our attention? And how many places are we putting our attention that are not really benefiting us or anyone else? Like whether Kate and Kim are due on the same day or not. <laughs> So this is a, v- a very, very big area, this whole quality of, uh, of wise attention. Bhikkhu Bodhi says something like, um, or I think this is from one of the commentaries, unwise attention is the basis for the whole round of existence. <coughs> and we can see that. Our energy goes out in unskillful ways and enmeshes us with the things we relate to in life. And out of that, craving gets amplified and that becomes the ground for more attachment. On the other hand, wise attention is really the key to liberation. Because when we start considering things closely with this wise attention, then we start understanding how suffering comes to be and how suffering gets released. That's really the point of wise attention. How do we harm ourselves? How do we free ourselves? The Buddha pointed to the importance of um, wise attention. He was talking about the factor of right view, which is the first factor of the Eightfold Path, in many ways the most important, most liberating factor of the Eightfold Path. He said there are two key factors that cause right view to grow. The one is um, a spiritual friend, hearing from another the way things are. The second is wise attention. Two key factors for the bringing about of right view. And then there are several suttas where uh, the Buddha talks about how wise attention is what gives rise to the seven factors of enlightenment. 
And the seven factors of enlightenment are what carry one to, to liberation. So you could say, in a way, it's really the foundation of the path. What we give our attention to and how we, how we give it. Something else that I hadn't realized until quite late in my practice, because nobody ever said it to me, but it's clearly said in the suttas, the hindrances are all uh, fed by unwise attention. Without unwise attention, the hindrances would just shrivel. So here's an example. This is from, in case you'd like to to read the sutta, it's from the Samyutta Nikaya. It's number 46, Sutta 2. What is the nutriment for sensual desire? Frequently giving unwise attention to the sign of a beautiful object. Think about that. What is the nutriment for sensual desire? Frequently giving unwise attention to the sign of a beautiful object. So it doesn't say giving attention to a beautiful object because it could be that a handsome man or a really attractive woman is someone that it's appropriate to give attention to. It says frequently giving attention to the sign that is the beautiful, you know, that which is seen as beautiful in that person, physically attractive. Frequently giving attention to the physical attractiveness of someone is what makes it problematic. So the language here is so precise and so accurate. And we can see that. You know, it could be a new car. You go into a showroom, you're looking for a new car, you know, and the Mercedes dealer is right next to the Honda dealer. (laughs) And, you know, you thought you were going to come away with a Civic, but you've just looked at the, you know, the C-Class Mercedes and you think, wow, that was so beautiful. And you go home and you keep thinking about it. You keep thinking about how beautiful it is. And you start to feel the craving force come up. And then I've got to have it. You know, and then you take out too big a loan and you can't pay your heating bill for the winter and all those complications from giving too much attention to the sign of the beautiful object. And then uh, he says... Can, can you go over that distinction again between the sign... The sign and the, and the object? Right. Yeah. Frequently giving attention to the sign of a beautiful object. The word here is nimitta which is also used in the development of samadhi, but it's more general than just a samadhi uh, usage. The sign of an object is kind of its distinguishing characteristic that you zero in on. So, you know, you could meet someone and um, the sign that they present to you, the thing you pick up on, is their wealth. You could meet someone and the sign or what you zero in on is their beauty. Or it could be their anger you know, in a kind of off-putting way. Um, So you focus on one particular sign about the object. It's a feature that sort of jumps out at you. And then you frequently give attention to just that aspect, so you don't see the person in their entirety. Yeah, you sort of forget the whole of it. Like if you're looking at the Mercedes with a view of the whole thing, you know, you'd have the impression of how much it's going to cost and what your annual budget actually is. And you say, it just doesn't really, it's beautiful, it doesn't really fit. But um, you zero in on that one aspect and you dwell on it again and again. And that's what creates the hindrance. And then is, is, that, um, is that 
task that sort of chosen to feed the ego. I mean, I, I choose the thing that, that pleases me most about mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. instead of instead of encountering the thing itself. Uh, are you saying is there some ego behind that? Yeah. yeah. There. Well, there are our own biases. When we're giving a lot of attention to one sign, and it's being driven in this case by desire, there are personal biases, and the self is taking a, is taking root in those biases. You know, when the grasping has happened and there's wanting, 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 we're establishing self. There's a kind of a new becoming. The person who wants the Mercedes, um, the self is being born again. So there's definitely ego involved. What if what if one just Appreciated the beauty of the Mercedes. That's and fine. Home and forgot about it. Then it's totally clear. There's there's no hindrance at work. That's totally fine, and one can even have joy for the craftsmanship. Could even take a test drive and say, "Wow, this steers so well. Really appreciate the way they did the dashboard. It's a beautiful thing, and I don't need it." Uh, oh, uh, you, excuse me. You had a, you had a question there. No, okay. with individuals I meet, if I like them, I can kind of see a whole mm -hmm. picture more. It's more if I have this, some trait that I don't like, that I have an aggression towards, mm -hmm. or a rejection of, mm -hmm. that's when mm -hmm. I will limit to just that mm -hmm. you know, the problem with that person is. Mm -hmm. And, and it's then I, the process, the practice for me is to become to see so let me read the next hindrance. <laughs> After sense desire is the second hindrance, aversion, right? Aversion. Ill will or aversion. So the sutta continues, this is 46.2 in the Samyutta. What is the nutriment for aversion? Frequently giving unwise attention to the sign of an unattractive object. So you know somebody who's an angry person, and that's really what strikes you. Yeah. Oh, you look at them, you see angry, angry, and then you go home and you think about that. Mm -hmm. That person is such an angry, why, how could they say that to me? Why would they do that? I don't have anything to do with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which may be skillful, actually. <laughs> it may be skillful, but uh, we'll get to that part a little later. But it's the way we give attention to it over and over that builds up the aver Simple example, I was... In a meditation retreat one time, a lot of you have heard this story before, and I went out for my walking meditation, and somebody was in my walking path. And I got very annoyed, and I started thinking, why are they in my walking path? They shouldn't be there. It's wrong of them. They should have noticed I was walking. They should have walked somewhere else and let me walk where I've been walking, you know, every time. And I'd keep telling myself this story, and the more I told myself the story, the more annoyed I was getting at the person. And as long as I was telling myself the story, I was giving unwise attention to the sign of the unattractive object, the person in my path. I couldn't get free of it. So the, what releases us from that kind of situation is start to give wise attention to the experience of the moment, which is anger. And in general, the, the, un, the hindrance tends to take us into unwise attention toward the object, Mindfulness brings us into wise attention with the emotion or the hindrance, and that's what can free us. So as long as we keep giving unwise attention and dwelling on the problem, we're stuck. 
As soon as we can turn the mindfulness to give wise attention to what we're feeling, ah, that's the way out. It may not happen immediately, but that's the way forward. In other words, you bring wise attention to the unwise attention? You could say it that way. I, I would prefer to say you bring wise attention to the hindrance itself. The, the hindrance is, is leading us to give unwise attention to the object. The wise attention needs to come to the hindrance. We, we feel that the hindrance is coming from the object. Well, I, I didn't quite feel that. but. No, I'm just saying. If I have aversion to somebody, yeah. I feel that that aversion is coming from them instead of from me. So how do I turn that around? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just to turn the mindfulness to the aversion in oneself. To realize that the aversion is here. Yes. It's something not related to that object, which is just doing what it is mm-hmm. as it's being. Even though I wish it would change. Um, that's something <laughs> that I can't control. So just allow it to be and watch your reaction to it. Yeah, be in touch with our own feelings is the most important thing. I mean, sometimes the person is doing something that really is not right. Like the the Tibetan monks who have been imprisoned and tortured. They know that their guards are doing something that really is not right. But, again, if they dwell on how bad it is what the guards are doing, they'll get caught up in anger. And or fear. Yeah. So they just watch themselves, as you're saying. Take responsibility for our own heart and our own reactions. So this is, this is something really helpful to remember with the hindrances. Hindrances are always rooted in unwise attention. And if you can bring wise attention into the situation, you start to move out of the hindrance. You, you shrivel the hindrance when you bring wise attention to it. So, um, this definition of wise and unwise attention is um, very similar to the definition of right effort. It's like one half of right effort. Uh, Definition of right effort is that you arisen unwholesome states you let go of and you guard against the arising of unarisen unwholesome states. So it's that half of right effort in relation to the taints. The other half of right effort is you um, develop wholesome states and then maintain them once they've arisen. Okay. Um, Let's go to number four. Where were we in the readings? Well, yeah. Because there are taints that should be abandoned by seeing. There are taints that should be abandoned by restraining. There are taints that should be abandoned by using. There are taints that should be abandoned by enduring. There are taints that should be abandoned by avoiding. There are taints that should be abandoned by removing. There are taints that should be abandoned by developing. Good. Thank you. 
So this is what the rest of the sutta is going to be about, is stepping through these, uh, way, these different ways of working with the taints. Um, so let's go into paragraph 5, which will talk about the first of these types. Please. Oh. What taints, bhikkhus, should be abandoned by seeing? Here, bhikkhus, an untaught ordinary person who has no regard for noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, who has no regard for true men and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, does not understand what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. Since that is so, he attends to those things unfit for attention, and he does not attend to those things fit for attention. Okay, thank you. So, um, this is similar to what we were just talking about, about wise attention and unwise attention, right? If you attend to things and the taints increase, that's not fit for attention. If you attend and the taints decrease, that's fit for attention. It's basically saying the same thing, and we'll get into that in paragraph 6. But just one little note on the opening of paragraph 5. The taints, it should be abandoned by seeing. Here, uh, seeing is the word dasana. And Bhikkhu Bodhi says, and I think he's probably right, that it's a particular meaning of the word dasana. Uh, might say a technical meaning in the Pali text, which means uh, stream entry. Stream entry, first stage of enlightenment. And we'll see as we get through more of the sutta why he makes that connection. But this word dasana is used in a technical way to mean seeing the unconditioned. So one practices, practices, practices. Insight is developing. Vipassana is developing. The mind is becoming clearer. The factors of enlightenment are developing. And then at a certain point, there's considered a breakthrough to the Dhamma, a breakthrough to uh, the unconditioned. One knows directly for oneself the nature of the unconditioned. And that is the moment of stream entry. We will see why this word is being interpreted in this way as we go, but for now I just want to mention it and we'll come back to it. Here the word seeing. Earlier the word seeing was used, I think in paragraph 3, it did not have that meaning. It meant knowing and seeing wise attention and unwise attention. That's for a practitioner on the path, but this is for the first stage of enlightenment. Okay, what things are unfit for attention? Let's, if you could please read that one. Desire is abandoned. The honor is taint of being 
does not arise in him, and the arisen taint of being is abandoned. The unarisen taint of ignorance does not arise in him, and the arisen taint of ignorance is abandoned. These are the things fitful attention that he does not attend to. By attending to things unfitful attention, and by not attending to things fitful attention, both unarisen things arising thing and arisen things increase. Okay. So here the Buddha is talking about the person who has not been trained and is just letting the mind go in its habitual direction. So basically the taint of uh, sensual desire is arising and not decreasing. And this can be if we turn our attention to those things that are the five chords of sense pleasure. The unarisen taint of becoming increases and uh, sorry, the unarisen taint arises and the arisen taint increases. How can this be if we turn our mind to what we want to become in the future with a sense of strong ego around that? And with ignorance, uh, we engage in seeing permanence, lasting happiness, and self or attractiveness where they are not present. We give our energy to seeing, validating the vipalasas. I just want to go back um, and hit paragraph five again for a second. This phrase, untaught ordinary person, uh, is common in the suttas. It comes in over and over. Bhikkhu Bodhi says he now has a preferred translation for this, which is uninstructed worldling. Uninstructed worldling someone who has not been exposed to the Dhamma. So a worldly person living by worldly values. The Pali word is patujana. Uh, you often will hear this you know, in Dharma circles. People talk about, oh, those patujanas. Uh, we don't, don't know what is what. I'm still a little confused about the use of the word being. The use of the word? Being. Translated as craving for existence. That's where the desire and craving come in, is that you're craving for existence. Craving for existence, right. yeah. Uh, so yeah. all craving comes under that. Well, craving for sense pleasures is a little different. Oh, okay. We were talking about it yeah. in the break a little bit, that someone who is the, you know, the CEO of a company, and um, every time he walks by, you know, everybody smiles and bows and sort of grovels, he gets an ego reinforcement for that because he's really somebody. So that's kind of a craving for existence. And that could be different than, say, the sensualist, you know, who really enjoys good food, good drink, massages. That person is more the craving for sense pleasure, driven by that. And then, yeah, that one's the first taint. The become desire for being someone is under the second taint. Um, and this other phrase, true men... Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi now translates this as superior persons. Superior persons. So it's a gender neutral. And it also recognizes that this is someone who has followed the way of the Dhamma, developed their uh, inner qualities more. So he's basically saying that the uninstructed worldling doesn't know what to pay attention to or how to pay attention, and on account of that, the taints 
uh, arise and the arisen ones increase. Yes? Question, just to clarify, did you say that um, giving attention to what we want to become in the future, that that's unwise attention? Not necessarily. Uh, giving attention to what we want to become in the future becomes unwise attention when there's a big sense of self around it. But if we're just planning, what do I need to learn in order to have a livelihood that will support myself and my family, that's all very sensible. But if we think, I'm going to be a big important person and get a lot of ego thrill out of that, then it's moving into unwise attention. Yeah, but planning for our future support is, can be done very wisely. It's a good thing. So let's see in paragraph 7 how one attends unwisely. This is how he attends unwisely. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what, what did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? Shall I be in the future? <laughs> Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else he is inwardly perplexed about the present, thus, am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? Mm. <laughs> which, which part? <laughs> what, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I? Yeah. Petition. Uh huh, uh huh. Yeah. One might say the Buddha a little like the Buddha. So, this is how one attends unwisely. Now, these things sound a little bit um, pat and like not what goes through our minds when we sit in quite this way. But when you think about these questions in more detail, a lot of what we do is mull over the past and future. And especially this thing, how was I in the past? We examine our actions. Was I skillful? Was I unskillful? Should I have said that to that person? Should I not have said that to that person? We look at the past with, often with regret and sadness. That's what kind of hindrances come in. We look at the future and we think, what shall I do in the future? How shall I do it? I have to give a presentation next week to my manager and their manager. How shall I do that? What shall I be? Will I be anxious when I do that? And so these give rise, you know, if the past is about regret and sadness, the future perplexity is about hope and fear. And this is unconscious, isn't it? Just coming mostly. out. It's not like I'm going to think about this. No, it's mostly unconscious. And it's being driven by these underlying taints. That is how we attend unwisely. I have to admit that this just made me laugh when I read it because I retired a couple of months ago and believe me, that is my entire inner dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I should embroider it on something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, really, it's really true. Our mind does go in these, in these loops. All this about past and future, you know, if you look at how your, where your mind spends its time on the meditation cushion, a lot of it is about past and future. And just as this said, it's all about I. It's all about I and me and evaluating ourselves, judging ourselves, trying to... Uh, ref We're often trying to find a reference point. 
You know, am I okay? Am I not okay? If I compare myself to this other person, I'll get a sense of where I'm at. Um, so this is a very this is a very good list to check out in meditation. Hmm? Not just on the cushion when you're washing no. the dishes. That's right. <laughs> no, it comes. That's right. It gets harder as we get older, as there's more and more past. There too. Yeah, but we don't remember it as well. Well, <laughs> that's the good thing. So, um, one of the comments that I've read is that. What really removes this kind of um, perplexity is seeing dependent origination. Because we start to understand that it's not so much about the solid eye, but it's about understanding the causes and effects that lead things to unfold. And then we don't have to worry so much about trying to control every little piece of it. It's, it's going to happen based on causes and conditions. Okay. Let's take a look at number eight. Number eight, it's for philosophy majors, but uh, let's go ahead and go through it. I was a philosophy minor. Oh, good. Well, you're the right person to read. When he attends unwisely in this way, one of six views arises in him. The view self-exists for me arises in him as true and established. Or the view, no self exists for me, arises in him as true and established. Or the view, I perceive self with self, arises in him as true and established. Or the view, I perceive not self with self, arises in him as true and established. Or the view, I perceive self with not self, arises in him as true and established. Or else he has some such view as this. It is this self of mine that speaks and feels and experiences here, and there the result of good and bad actions. But this self of mine is permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and it will endure as long as eternity. This speculative view, Bhikkhus, is called the thicket of views, <laughs> the wilderness of views, the portion of views, the vacillation of views, the fetter of views. Fettered by the fetter of views, the untaught ordinary person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. He is not freed from suffering, I say. Thank you. So, just to make a little bit of a sense of this, because otherwise it sounds too theoretical, um, let's go through, you know, just briefly these different views. Self exists for me. This is considered the eternalist view, that, yeah, there is a self and it's ongoing. No self exists for me. This is not the Buddha's doctrine of anatta. The Buddha's doctrine of anatta never says no self exists. It says, this Dhamma is not self, this Dhamma is not self, this Dhamma is not self, this Dhamma is not self. But it never says no self exists. So this is considered what in Indian philosophy at that time was called the annihilationist view. There's really no self. And then the next three are about, I perceive self with self, I perceive not self with self, I perceive self with not self. It's recognizing that there are two aspects to us, let's say simply, consciousness, and let's say body. So we might take both of those as being self. So the consciousness perceives the body, and both of those are me. Or 
I perceive not self with self. The consciousness is the self, but the body is not self. I perceive self with not self. Or the body is the self and the consciousness is not self. I perceive self with not self. So those are the different combinations. And then this last one basically just says, I am a self. Let's get on with it. <laughs> so, of course, the Buddha doesn't land in any of those views. So is the Buddha saying the self is reborn as in each moment as there's cognition? Is he saying that it's not like we don't have cognition? I mean, I'm not sure I, I remember how this goes, but I thought that the Buddha did not say that we don't have a continuing, that he said it wasn't continuing, but that something is happening and we recognize it in a way that's a sense of self. Or is it possible to have that recognition? And there's just, although you say he doesn't say there's no self, <laughs> um, there isn't one. There's just the perception, there's just the recognition. So um, this paragraph is about having a view about things, like a fixed view. And the way that the Buddha describes, what the Buddha describes is kind of not a philosophical view, but rather the way to see things in order to liberate ourselves. And he says the way to see things to liberate ourselves is not to take the body as self, or feelings as self, or perception, or emotions, or consciousness, not to claim any of them as I or my. And if we practice in that way, not ascribing self anywhere, it will lead... Hmm? Not to identify with anything. Yeah, not to identify with anything. That's the path that will lead to, to liberation, but to seeing clearly. There is no self. That's a view. And then there's, a, there's actually, if you take a stance like that, mm -hmm. there's somebody there doing it. Right. Okay. So he doesn't take a stance on it. He's just telling us how to practice to see more clearly. Okay, let's, let's uh, try number 9. Let's go quickly through 9, 10, and 11 because I think you'll see these <coughs> quite obviously. Because a well-taught noble disciple who has regard for noble ones and is skilled in discipline in their dharma, in their dharma who has regard for true men and is skilled in discipline in their dharma, understands what things are fit for attention and what things are unfit for attention. Since that is so, he does not attend to those things unfit for attention, and he attends to those things fit for attention. Thank you. And uh, this is just the other side of the paragraph about what the untaught, ordinary person attends to. Here's what a skillful person does. So let's read uh, paragraph 10. Please. What are the things unfit for attention that he does not attend to? They are things such as that when he attends to them, the unarisen taint of sensual desire arises in him, and the arisen taint of ignorance increases. And there's an ellipsis here where you understand that he's going through also what happens with the taint of being, etc. Yeah. These are the things unfit for attention that he does not attend to. And what are the things fit for attention that he attends to? They are things such that when he attends to them, the unarisen taint of sensual desire does not arise in him, <laughs> and, he, and the arisen taint of ignorance is abandoned. These are the things fit for attention that he attends to. 
by not attending to things unfit for attention, and by attending to things fit for attention, an arisen taints do not arise in him, and arisen taints are abandoned. Yeah, thank you. So this is still the, um, just the opposite of what the uninstructed worldling does. And the next one? He attends wisely. This is suffering. He attends wisely. This is the origin of suffering. He attends wisely. This is the cessation of suffering. He attends wisely. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. When he attends wisely in this way, three fetters are abandoned, abandoned in him. Personality view, doubt, and adherence to rules and observances. <laughs> These are called the taints that should be abandoned by seeing. Yeah, thank you. So this is quite a potent paragraph. So he's attending, what's this list he's attending to? Four Noble Truths. Yeah. He's seeing suffering, its origin, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation. So he is wisely attending to the Four Noble Truths, which is the undoing of ignorance. Ignorance is not seeing the Four Noble Truths. As wisdom is developed, it sees the Four Noble Truths. This is the point of the path. When he attends wisely in this way, three fetters are abandoned in him. What are these three fetters? What does this mark? When these three fetters are abandoned, yeah, stream stream entry. These are the first three of the ten fetters that go, and these are the three that are abandoned at stream entry. And that's why it said these are the taints that should be abandoned by seeing. That's how you know that the seeing here refers to that first moment of seeing Nibbana seeing enlightenment, because the stream-enterer has understood the cessation of suffering firsthand for the first time. It hasn't fully released that person, but one has seen how it can happen. One has no doubt any longer that it can happen. One has walked the path and knows that the path leads to that, letting go of craving entirely, experiencing the unconditioned. And so uh, doubt is eliminated because one knows for oneself the truth of the third noble truth, the end of craving, and that one has walked the path to reach it. And um, personality view, Bhikkhu Bodhi says that what he likes to say now is identity view. This is basically identifying with any of the five aggregates, taking body as self, taking perceptions, feelings, mental formations, consciousness as self. One recognizes none of those constitute uh, an enduring self because one has stepped out of them altogether. In seeing the unconditioned, one realizes that all the conditioned aspects are simply coming and going. There's this very nice phrase that's over and over in the suttas. It's not in this one, but it recurs again and again. The spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in them. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. That's the indication of stream entry. That's the stock phrase that indicates stream entry. But I'll say it again. The spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in them. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. So first there's the vision of the Dhamma. There's the clear, this is Dhamma with a capital D. The clear seeing of the Dhamma. Dhamma is often a synonym for the unconditioned, for the ultimate truth. And then all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. So one has seen clearly all conditioned things have the nature to come and go. 
this is the only thing, this Dhamma is the only thing that does not have the nature to come and go. So there's, one realizes there's no basis for identification that could endure more than momentarily. Of course, ignorance comes back in and we, you know, one forgets and one will attach again, but one has seen. It's described as a first glimpse of the unconditioned, and it usually doesn't last long. And for most people, it doesn't have the power to uproot all the fetters. The Buddha's enlightenment uprooted all the fetters with one, ins- you know, one insight. But for most people, it's more gradual than that. So the first contact, the first realization of the unconditioned uproots these three fetters. The third fetter, adherence to rules and observances, has two senses that that I know of. One is the Buddha was teaching at a time when um, Brahminical culture was the religious establishment of the day, and there were many, many texts about the rituals one had to perform, or that the priestly caste had to perform to carry out that work of purification. And the Buddha basically said, sorry, rituals don't do it. Rituals will never purify one. That is not a way that the heart and mind get purified. And the observances here, one could say that um, certain external practices alone could do it. Like there were many ascetic practitioners in the Buddha's time who thought that the way to purity was um, negating the body. And so they would spend winters in the Himalayas with no clothes. They would practice in the blazing sun and, you know, be very, very hot. They would go without water or without clothing. They would stand on one leg, you know, for hours and hours and thought that torturing the body would release the soul. The Buddha said, no, that doesn't do it either. So one has understood through the path that one has walked and what's required to open the, the Dhamma eye, the vision of the Dhamma, that it won't be done through rituals and it can't be done through external practices. It's only a development of the mind that will lead to that, specifically the seven factors of awakening. Can I ask on that, you know, mm. the, um, by not holding on to a fi- any fixed view, right? Mm. You, I mean, this is rule and observance, but even in the, on the path of you hold on to any view, that will mm. prevent you from release. Yes, at some point one does have to let go of, of all the fixed views. When The simile of the raft, you know, the Buddha talked about even Dhamma views are for the purpose of crossing over and not for the purpose of hanging on to. He says when one has crossed over, one lets go even of Dhamma views. Yes, eventually. So these are called the taints that should be abandoned by seeing, and this seeing is meant to be insight into the unconditioned. Now, the word taints here is being used to describe these three fetters. So I would say that the word taints in this instance is being used rather loosely. Personality view is not normally considered a taint. There are only three taints in the suttas, sense pleasures, becoming, and ignorance. So here it's being used more loosely to describe unwholesome qualities of mind. So we just realize that the definition is being a little expanded at this point, and that's okay. These things are all expressions in some way or another 
of sense, sense desire, desire for becoming, and ignorance. What things are? Sorry? You said these things are all expressions of. So what things are? are the three fetters. The three fetters that are mentioned here are different forms of these. So um, I think we'll skip. Actually, no, this one is good. I want to do one more. Um, the rest of the sutta is fairly self-explanatory, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on them, but I would like to spend a little more time on this ne next section, Taints to be Abandoned by Restraining. Could you read that? Okay. What taints bhikkhus should be abandoned by restraining? Here a bhikkhu, reflecting wisely, abides with the eye faculty restrained. While taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who abides with the eye faculty unrestrained, there are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who abides with the eye faculty restrained. Reflecting wisely, he abides with the ear faculty restrained, with the nose faculty restrained, with the tongue faculty restrained, with the body faculty restrained, with the mind faculty restrained. While taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who abides with the faculties unrestrained, there are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who abides with the faculties restrained. These are called the taints that should be abandoned by restraining. Hmm. Thank you. Does this, does this relate to the paragraph about objects unfit for attention? Uh, in a way. But I want to make again that distinction. It's not that there are specific objects that one shouldn't give attention to. It's more there are objects that one shouldn't give attention to unwisely. That was a little confusing when that was being read. And that's you why... Say, you did say objects unfit for. Yes, yes. And it isn't so explicit in that part of the sutta, but it becomes more explicit in, through this and other suttas. So what does it mean to dwell with the eye faculty restrained? Or sometimes we talk about guarding the sense doors. We'll often give that instruction on retreat to guard the sense doors. It doesn't mean don't open your eyes. <laughs> sometimes that's the impression. Oh, don't open your eyes. Don't look around. You might see a beautiful sight, a sunset. You might hear a bir beautiful bird call or see a beautiful person that you're attracted to. It doesn't mean that. It means when your eye is working, attend closely to the mind that's receiving that impression. So this is made more clear in another passage. So this is from Majima 39. And I think if you were here at the previous class, I think you all studied Majima 39. I don't know how, in what detail, but let me just read this. This is 39.8 for those who are interested. Bhikkhus, you should train thus. We will guard the doors of our sense faculties. On seeing a form with the eye, we will not grasp at its signs and features. Here, sign is that nimitta that we talked about earlier, the main characteristic that jumps out at you. Features are the secondary things that you notice about it. We will not grasp at its signs and features. Since, if we left the eye faculty unguarded, evil, unwholesome states of covetousness and grief might invade us. We will practice the way of its restraint we will guard the eye faculty, 
we will undertake the restraint of the eye faculty. And similarly, through the other five faculties, and here they are including the mind door as one to pay attention to and restrain, not to get carried away with things that we see in the mind door either, but to start to watch if covetousness and grief come up around any of the sense doors. That's called guarding it. So it's not about, I'm going to put blinkers on and not let myself see anything. It's about, I'm going to attend really closely to what the mind's reaction is when I see these things through the sense doors. Um, If you see a violent movie, then you know right away the mind is not going to have a good reaction. It's going to be difficult for it. So in that case, you could say, I'll watch the third, but I won't go to this movie. Yes. So you, can make, you can work with the object, right? Yes, you can work with the objects as well. And so there is another list of taints that will be abandoned by avoiding. So if one knows that certain sites are going to be unhelpful, one simply avoids those sites. If one knows that certain people are going to be unhelpful, One avoids those people. It says one of the things one avoids is bad companions. That means so-called friends who want to lead one down an unhelpful route. Um, This is generally about uh, appealing things, possibly. So here's another one, um, another way of describing. This is from Samyutta 46, number 6. Having seen an agreeable form with the eye, a bhikkhu does not long for it, or become excited by it, or generate lust for it. His body is steady, and his mind is steady, inwardly well composed and well liberated. But having seen a disagreeable form with the eye, he is not dismayed by it, not daunted, not dejected, without ill will. His body is steady, and his mind is steady, inwardly well composed and well liberated. So these are just two different ways, both describing how to guard the sense faculties. On seeing agreeable or disagreeable forms, one doesn't let it, as he said elsewhere, invade the mind and remain there. So, supposing we have an object that we have a lot of aversion to, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of emotion, mm-hmm. um, can we just be present with that, or is this instruction to actually rein, rein in or, or try to be with it more? Or like it, it feels like this instruction is more than just being present to what's happening. Basically, the instruction here is don't get carried away in reactivity, but sometimes one doesn't have a choice about that. And so if there is reactivity, then I'd say the instruction is attend wisely to the reactive formation in oneself, rather than attending unwisely to the signs and features of the objects that provoke it. Mm -hmm. I think that would be wise attention in that case. Yes. Question? Yeah, I'm curious about this word fever and if it actually refers to something physiological <laughs> or if it's meant to mean something else. I, I interpreted it as psychological okay. fever. Um, but it's, it's hard to know. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know definitively. So you would use your own practice to, because in the word, there might be, he remains, what does it say, equal? Mm-hmm. And then it said solid or Yes. What, what are the words there that you said there? But yeah. you would use your practice at that time. Yes, use your practice. In order to be yes. of David. Yes, and that's the use of wise attention. 
use one's practice. So I'll leave the rest of the sutta for you all to read. I think it is fairly self-explanatory from here on. Mm-hmm. Taints to be abandoned by using, by enduring, by avoiding, by removing as far as possible, and by developing. And in the developing, it's basically the list of the enlightenment factors. So when we develop the enlightenment factors, unwholesome states do not arise. Okay. Can you say say something very briefly about removing? Removing, yeah. Yeah. This vocabulary comes in quite a lot. Um, We can just look at that briefly. If people need to leave since it's past four, feel free. And we'll spend just a few more minutes if there are questions. What taint should be abandoned by removing? An arisen thought of sensual desire, an arisen thought of ill will, an arisen thought of cruelty. He does not tolerate arisen unwholesome states. He abandons them, removes them. So these are the um, three unwholesome motivations. Desire, ill will, and cruelty are the wrong, um, wrong intent, three wrong intentions. So as far as possible, if one has a thought like that, one doesn't dwell on it, one lets it go. Sometimes the mind is compulsive and can't let go, but the instruction is try to let go. And if one can't let go, then one tries to be wisely attentive to it as far as possible. That's the best we can do, to be mindful. But the encouragement is let go if we can. So it's, it's really, it's abandoned. Yeah. Mm, no, well, yeah, I guess, yeah, okay. A synonym for abandon is let go. Yeah, yeah, okay. Think of it as let, let go, and a synonym for let go sometimes is let be. <laughs> if we can't let it go. Sometimes let go means make it go away. And that has too much of an aversive push. So then we need to say let it be. Okay, so why don't we wrap up our class here. I'll stay if people want to come up, ask about anything else, and just have a moment to dedicate the merit of our work. So, may your wise attention and careful consideration of these themes recommended by the text be helpful for your own practice, for the removal and decreasing of unwholesome states, And may that help everyone that you come in contact and everyone that they come in contact with so that our work together today be dedicated for the welfare and happiness of all beings everywhere. So thank you all for coming. Enjoyed being with you and enjoyed our dialogue. And... uh, there was a, re- was a request to have more of these in the future, so we'll talk with the powers that be and uh, see if we can put that on the program again. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.